Good day and welcome to the Parental Rights Podcast. I'm Michael Ramey, the Executive Director of the Parental Rights Foundation and ParentalRights.org. And today I'm with New York City resident and parent advocate Joyce McMillan. You can find this and all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, or our website at ParentalRightsFoundation.org. And you can support our work through a donation at our website, ParentalRightsFoundation.org. Uh, today's guest, Joyce McMillan, is the founder of JMAC for Families and the PLAN Coalition, which stands for Parent Legislative Action Network. Now, Joyce is also a fellow with the Law for Black Lives and a visiting fellow at the Center for New York City Affairs at the New School. And that's just a start. She wears several other hats as well, including as a coalition partner I am proud to know and work with. Joyce, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Michael. So recently, New York passed a law that spells good news for parents on the child abuse state registry or for parents accused of abuse or neglect in New York who could go on the registry. You had a lot to do with that law, and it gives families a lot to celebrate. Tell us about this new law in New York. It's really exciting. Um, it changed how the state central registry in New York State functions, and it changed four core things. And the first thing it changed is that families will no longer stay on the registry until their youngest child turns the age of 28. And oftentimes the clock was reset when the person gave birth to a new child. I don't oh, think sure. the law intended for that to happen, but it happened more times than not. So people will stay on the registry for neglect. All of the changes we made um, reference neglect and not abuse cases. Um, and so parents who stay on the registry now for eight flat years sounds much like mass incarceration, right? Eight flat. Um, the second thing we changed is that we raised the standard um, to indicate a case, which the word indication, I believe, was used because it happened outside of a courtroom and the people who put you on this list, case managers from our local child protection service office, ACS in New York City, um, does not have the judicial authority to find you guilty. But being on the registry with that indication had the same effects as a felony conviction, blocking people from employment for the years that they were on the registry. So we're raising the standard um, so that it's not credible evidence to put someone on a registry, but a preponderance of evidence. I find that credible evidence is below the legal standard. Mm -hmm. And so we have raised that standard to equate to having concrete evidence that would support the claim against the parent and not just someone's opinion or implicit bias making a decision to be better safe than sorry and keep a watchful eye on someone who is very undeserving of the sentence to poverty. Right. The third thing we changed is that if a person wins in family court, um, that precludes a finding of an indicated case that can be held by our local CPS office, which happened prior. Um, ACS, the Administrator of Children's Services, would place people on the registry even after being found not guilty in um, a family court setting, which essentially gave our CPS more power than a judge. So that too has been changed. If a judge finds that a person is not guilty of the charges brought against them, they will not go on a registry. 
Mm-hmm. And the last thing is that when parents sought to have a hearing to come off the registry, they could not provide any relevant information to show the improvements that they've made in their life. So an example, mom left her 13 and 15 year old home while she worked, a call got made into the registry, maybe the boys were fighting, whatever occurred, mom goes on the registry for neglect. Subsequent to that happening, mom moves in with her parents who are retired, the kids will never be left alone again. But when mom appeals to come off the registry, she was not allowed to present that new evidence. And today she will be able to present that relevant evidence um, to come off the registry. So those are four very important things that I'm proud to say New York understood the importance of and our governor stepped up and did the right thing and signed it into law. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, I mean, every one of those, it's just the, the condition that you just told me about that things were in before this law, um, that's just mind-boggling to me, um, that parents could go on the registry until their youngest turns 28. That's, um, I mean, obviously, that's no longer the case. This law changes that. Now it's just eight years. That's a huge improvement. Um, how in the world did it what was the thinking behind keeping them on the registry until the youngest turns 28 anyway? I think that leads straight into the conversation of slavery, racial disproportionality, and how systems intersect with that and how systems are a derivative of slavery. Okay. Who's and- may be affected by um, systems or people of color and how they punish and not support. They call surveillance support, and it's not. They call poverty neglect, and it's not. And so it's made to create these narratives that makes it okay to super surveillance certain communities and keep them in a place of needing um, systems in order to survive. Okay. Um, and, and two things I would, I would say here. One, some of our listeners may say, oh, well, I don't see this racial stuff where I am. But they're not in big cities like New York and Philadelphia. I mean, you're right there in New York. Um, I don't think things operate the same in New York as they do out here in the valley of northwestern Virginia where I am. Um, and so I'm not going to try to compare. Um, I've heard the stories. I've heard the accounts. And we've done a report that shows the racial disproportionality that goes on there. Uh, so no, by no means am I going to naysay any of what you've just said in your experience, because um, I have no doubt it happens. Um, uh, and, and then the, the second thing, and again, I did this last week too, I lost, I lost my second thought there, but I will come back around to it. Um, what I would like to add to that is that it is different in New York City than in states like Virginia and other areas. Um, but what happens is, white poor people become the collateral damage of these laws that were created to entrap black people. So it's not just black people or people of color, but it's also disproportionately poor people. It is that. And the, the numbers have shown that, uh, that too. And we've seen that as well. Um, I remember my second point was um, Dorothy Roberts. I'm sure you're familiar with her work. Very familiar. And, with yes. And I've studied her work as well. And she, and she points out, she made a great quote in her book about the color of child welfare, where she said that if, uh, if, if somebody from the outside were to come in and look at the American system, um, 
then they would have to they would have to conclude that our prisons were put in place to keep the African-American male in line and our uh, child welfare system was put in place to keep the African-American female and children in line. And um, now that's, that's her, that's her opinion. That's her view, but it, it's something we at least need to consider. I mean, it, it, it looks like that just looking at it. Well, I've had several conversations. I've been blessed enough to have several conversations with Miss Dorothy Roberts and spent some quality time with her. And um, I would take it a step further in saying that foster care is a prerequisite to the prison industrial complex. When we look at the parallels between the two, mm -hmm. they both strip search, children under the guise of checking for marks and bruises. They're both separated from everything they know and love, isolated mm -hmm. from anything familiar to them. They both have set visit times on set visit days. They both eat what they are served. They both change locations using garbage bags or pillowcases. They're both paroled back, children to the family, um, prisoners to the community. They both have oversight during the parole period. We could go on and on and on, but you get the gist. Sure. Well, and, and just the simple fact that broken families so often beget broken families. So if you can go in um, through child welfare and break the family, when it, maybe the family needed help, maybe they needed support, and instead you break it up. Um, right. Then you begin that generational system, or at this point, we just continue that generational breaking of families, one after, one generation after the next. And so often the, the men end up in, in prison. And absolutely, it does not make any sense. And the reason why I call it a prerequisite is because so many of those children, their outcome is being incarcerated because being in the child welfare system creates disproportionately um, addiction issues, mental health addictions, homelessness, and other things that um, cause people to ultimately become incarcerated. And many children who have spent time in the child welfare center um, system have met that fate of being incarcerated. And I say any system actually built to protect children should no way mimic a system that tortures adults. And so that is why I call it a prereq because it functions identically and I feel is preparing the children for their fate later on in life. Mm. Wow. There's a lot of truth to that. So um, shifting gears a little bit, uh, you are in New York City, and things there are different than here. But some, but one thing that's a lot the same um, is, you know, the whole COVID nineteen thing is going on right now, and that's had an, a huge impact here, and a different impact, I'm sure, here than there, because um, New York City, I mean, that's almost ground zero in the U.S. for this whole thing. You guys, yes. you got it big. Um, what are things like there for you right now, and for and for families, for parents trying to keep their families together? Well, what I'm hearing is courts are operating under the essential model. And of course, mm. in the eyes of our lovely judicial system, essential only means to separate families, but not to reunite them, um, which is problematic because families are not seeing their children right now. And some families cannot even verify that their child is still alive. Um, again, we talk about who's affected. And when we think about poor people, they don't have internet at home. So they're unable to do FaceTime. They're mm -hmm. unable to do Zoom and other um, electronic mechanisms that we may utilize to interact with one another. And so they have essentially been blocked out of their children's lives. I am appealing to New York City 
to expedite the return of children who were slated to be returned anyway, who the goal was to return to parent, who the parent, if not, even if they have not completed all of the services assigned to them, but have been making headway in doing so and showing good faith in um, doing the things that have been requested um, to expedite the return of those children so that families can be together during this very scary time. Yeah, now I'm sure you saw the article last week the head of the Children's Bureau, and I'm drawing a blank on his last name, but Jerry. Milner. Yes, Milner. Jerry Milner. Thank you. See, I knew you'd know it. Um, Jerry Milner wrote, and, and, said, and he's the head of the Children's Bureau, federal, you know, the United States Health and Human Services Department. And he basically said a lot of the same things you just said, that we need to use common sense. Families shouldn't be hurt by the system short, shortcomings. Um, yes, it's hard to keep them together, but to put it into the words that people are using during this pandemic, family is essential and it should be treated like an essential thing. Um, yeah, and it's not in so many cases. It's not, it's not. And what frustrates me more than anything is this guise of protecting children. When I just mentioned to you the outcomes of many children, right. um, how are we protecting children? utilizing a system that creates this type of harm. It's, it's just not truthful. It's a false narrative to drive white supremacy and to drive um, the 1% of America who um, benefit in some way from systems operating and keeping people in positions of relying on systems. Um, I've also had the opportunity to meet with and speak to um, Jerry Milner, mm -hmm. and um, he's an amazing guy. And oftentimes I find even with my allies, um, there's great debate with us. And I did not have that same experience when speaking to Jerry Milner nor David Kelly. And so I am always taken back and very supportive of the things he says, they're very encouraging words that someone in his position speaks openly. And I never seen it happen prior to meeting him. Yeah, I, um, I got to meet him a couple of years ago at a conference in DC too. And, um, you know, I'm glad to hear you say that because I didn't want to sound like I'm trying to praise the guy to you or something, but we're on the same page. Because I've noticed with him, he, I, I've got to give him credit for this. He recognizes, as you just said, the system is broken. It's not doing what it's supposed to be designed to do. Uh, and we need to overhaul it. And so he may or may not have all the right answers, but he's certainly asking the questions. He's certainly pointing out that, hey, look, this doesn't work. Absolutely. It doesn't make sense. Just like I'll refer back, it doesn't make sense to build a system that we say is to protect children that mimics a system that tortures adults. It just does not make sense. And on that fact alone, we have to begin to unravel the harms of the system and make immediate corrections. Right. So, um, so what are some corrections then we could make? Um, for me, one of the things is um, changing what mandated reportership is and what it looks like. Because mm -hmm. I find it very interesting that you have um, systemic places that are failing children and creating the outcomes that they create for children who enter the foster care system or come under the surveillance of the foster care system, but yet we're mandated to report parents. 
I find that very interesting that we're not reporting the agencies in which we work for that are harming families through unnecessary separations, misdocumentation, and clear dishonesty mm -hmm. in some cases. And, and I know you've seen probably more cases than I have of this where concerned relatives, not, not the parents trying to get back at somebody or anything, but the concerned relatives worried about those kids, they try to report the agencies and nothing ever comes of it. It's like just... We just ignore that. We just forget that. The agency can't be reported. Again, the, the um, parallel between mass incarceration or the criminal justice system and foster care, the blue wall of silence, mm. right? We mm -hmm. see it. it. There is an exact parallel between the two systems. And until we begin to recognize that and, um, and dismantle that, we'll always have the same outcomes because we'll have the same actions continuing to be in place. Right, right. So, um, the, uh, so I w you know, I was having a conversation with my girls last night, actually. They've suddenly taken an interest in the Bill of Rights um, and in some of our, our rights that are enumerated there in the Constitution. Um, and we were looking at the due process rights. And I mentioned to them that because our family courts are civil courts and not criminal courts, that's, that due process looks different in the family court than when you're charged with a crime. It's, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's insanity. It's complete insanity. And I don't think that was an accident to put the family court under the civil court um, versus um, a court that would have more accountability to a person's civil and constitutional rights. Right. So, so if we circle back all the way to where we started from um, regarding the due process, um, before you put a name on the, on the central registry, so going all the way back, the new law now, you've raised the standard, the evidentiary standard, which is wonderful, so that instead of just some credible evidence, um, it's the preponderance of the evidence, which means more evidence points to it than not, right? right. Um, but there's, a pro there's still a problem there. I think you would agree that it's still the social worker, it's still the, the investigator who, who gets to decide, maybe with their supervisor, whether to put you on there or not. Now, again, it's wonderful that if a judge says, no, you're not guilty, then you can't go on there. Um, but you can still get put on there before a judge finds you guilty. Um, so obviously, in, in a state like New York that is notoriously bad at taking care of families, uh, this is a huge step, a wonderful step in the right direction. There's some other states out there that maybe could go a step farther. And, uh, and, you know, you're part of the coalition that we're with too, where we're working on introducing in some states that you can't put the name on the registry until there has been due process, until a judge or at least a magistrate has found, you know, that it's indicated or that they're guilty of some form of abuse or neglect. Uh, would you agree? I mean, is that the next step? Absolutely, I would agree. And absolutely, that is a next step. I would say what we did is only a first step. Um, and it's a small step. And it, and it just goes to show how horrible this system is that this change looks as monumental as people mm -hmm. are referring to it to be. Um, but it's huge only because we've been operating under dysfunction for so long with no changes. But this is something that's long overdue. And yes, that is the next step. But what's good about um, the fact that it's still up to a case manager, what's 
good is that when a person goes to appeal the case, if they decide they want to pursue coming off the registry, they have the opportunity at that point to show that there was not a preponderance of evidence. And so that gives them another foot up in um, their goal or their work towards coming off the registry if for any reason they are placed on. That's, that's right. So I, in fact, somebody asked us on our uh, Facebook page the other day about this. And we told them, you know, obviously the ideal is it needs to go to a judge first, but raising the evidentiary standard and um, protecting the appeal hearing and this kind of thing means that that social worker's decision, not only does it need to meet that standard, it's going to be subject to review. Um, right. you know, like you just said, it's not just, well, the social worker said we're on here, so we're on here. They can appeal it. And then it will go before a judge and the judge could say, no, there's not that preponderance of the evidence. You didn't meet the standard. Uh, take the name back off. So, um, yeah. So I'm glad to hear you say that because it means I answered the person right on Facebook. I wasn't positive, but that's, that's how it looked to me. Why am I not following you on Facebook? I have to follow you. That'd be great. Yeah, we'd, we'd love to. Because I tell you what, I mean, and I mentioned this to you right before we started the recording, but so many of the stories we've been sharing on Facebook in recent months, it feels like half of them. Um, have a quote from Joyce McMillan in them. It's like everybody, every article that we want to post and share with people and say, hey, check this out. There really is a problem or check this out. This is really great news. Somebody was like, wait, the story's not done yet. We've got to ask Joyce what she <laughs> thinks. So yeah, you should follow us. You'll find yourself on there a lot. I have nothing better to do but sit around and make up quotes. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that's that's clearly not all you're doing, but uh, it's, a, it's a big part of it. I mean, you're making changes there, and, you, and you're really having – it looks to me like – and I know there's still a whole lot of work for all of us to do, uh, but it looks to me like you're having kind of a pretty successful year. Um, I mean, this is a, a big change there, and I know there's still so much work to do, but I hope you're encouraged. I, I am encouraged. If you can see, I know the um, listeners cannot – but we're on video here, my hope sign in the back. Yes. Um, and I carry that hope with me wherever I go and for whatever it is that I do. And this legislation pass, passing has really encouraged me to keep that hope alive because it says if you're consistent and hardworking, it is possible. And so I want to take a moment um, to thank everyone in New York Mm -hmm. and outside of New York who supported this legislation. The many organizations who signed on and the awesome attorneys from the Defender Services in New York City who supported me wholeheartedly and threw resources behind me and went to Albany with me and just encouraged me to keep going. I wanna say thank you to each and every one of them. And of course, Senator Montgomery, who championed this as a sponsor of the legislation and who did not become deflated or lose hope um, the first time around when the governor vetoed it. So thank you to all of them. Yeah, I would add this too. You mentioned you want to follow us on Facebook. I would also say we want to follow you. We want to keep in touch with you and, and stay on track with what you're doing. I don't think Proportionately, we have a huge number of supporters in New York City, but we do have a good number there. And especially as that grows, we want them to know about the work you're doing and we want to support it because uh, you're doing good work. You're taking care of the families there, protecting parental rights, protecting family rights, working to keep families together. And that's what Parental Rights Foundation is all about. So we want to encourage our listeners and our supporters um, and our email followers 
to know what you're doing and, and stay and, you know, and get behind it. Well, let me share for my Instagram is jmat for families and that's J-M-A-C, the word for spelled out, F-O-R, families. Um, for my Facebook, it's Joyce McMillan. And for my Twitter, it's jmac for families Wonderful. I appreciate you sharing that. And I do hope that folks, especially in the New York City area, will, um, will take the time to, to follow you and, and stay up with what you're doing because it is, it's good work. I'm hoping they will join the fight if they're not already involved. This concludes part one of this conversation with Joyce McMillan. Tune in next week for the conclusion. Find this and all episodes of the Parental Rights Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or at parentalrightsfoundation.org. And donate to support the mission of the Parental Rights Foundation, including this podcast, also at parentalrightsfoundation.org. 